right, well, let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Exodus. We are jumping back into Exodus after a, what, eight-month hiatus? It's been a while. It's like a first and second feed a while. <laughs> yeah, and then summer stuff. Yep. So, uh, Exodus, we are going to look at chapters 7 through 10. We're not going to read them all right now, so don't worry about that. But uh, we are going to read some from chapter 7, uh, the first 13 verses. So when you get that, if you're able, go ahead and stand as we read God's holy word. We're going to see that this kind of sets the tone for all the 10 plagues. And uh, we'll see kind of a repeatable pattern here. So chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions and my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. Amen. Let's take a seat together. Well, since it's been so long, I think it's time for us to do kind of a little bit of a recap in this story of the book of Exodus and where we have been thus far. The book opens up with God being faithful to one of his great covenant promises all the way back to Abraham. You remember when we went through the book of Genesis, we talked about those covenant promises that God made to Abraham, to his family, to all the people of God that would come after them. One of those promises was that he would make him a people as great as the sand on the seashore or as many as the stars in the sky. And when God's people came to Egypt, they were a small extended family. Not too big, right? But by this time, they had grown exponentially. And the Bible says a Pharaoh rose that did not know Joseph. You remember probably some of the Joseph story, right? How God raised up Joseph. He took this bad situation where his brothers threw him in that, in that well, sold him to slavery, and yet... God provided for this family through Joseph. Well, the new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, 
And the new Pharaoh began to get squirrely with the people of God, right? He didn't like the people of God. The people of God started getting big. And he said, well, we got to do something about this. He began to say, well, we're going to make them work harder and longer. We're scared that they might turn on us. So he became stricter, kind of like the owner of a sweatshop in a third world country. He demanded more product, fewer hours, or sorry, fewer uh, resources, in half the time with no pay. He wanted them to do more and more and more. He wanted to break their spirits, to crush them, so they would not rebel. But again, God had not abandoned them, just like he's not abandoned us. No matter how bad it gets, God had not forgotten his promises to them. And he would raise up a deliverer. We've already seen that, that how Moses kind of plays this, this role of deliverer for the people of God and how that points us to Jesus as our ultimate deliverer. And so God calls young Moses to this sacred task. You remember the burning bush and how God set him apart for this awesome ministry. But before he did that, he was going to have to be formed in the crucible of life. He was going to have to learn some hard lessons. He was going to have to go through some hard things in order to be that leader that God wanted him to be. The text says by time here, Moses was 80 years old, ready to be used by God, ready to be the tool that would humble Pharaoh and his whole kingdom. One quote I want to read for us here. I thought it was really helpful. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. What a lesson for each of us to learn, right? We start out having a very high view of ourselves. We have to be humbled. And then once we're humbled, God has to bring us back up and said, now I'm ready to use you, right? Moses was in that place. And now this brings us here to the 10 plagues. And as we take this look at this exciting story of how God takes head on Pharaoh and all of Egypt's false gods, we're going to learn that God uses even temporary judgment to unbelievers to accomplish his plans, to glorify himself and to bless his people. So let's dive in first looking at God's judgment and defeat of the wicked. We just said, as we read here in chapter seven, that each of these 10 plagues follows kind of a repeatable pattern with some variation. Like a boxing match in the red corner, we have Moses representing the people of God and the Lord himself. And over in the black corner, who do we have? We have Pharaoh and all of his false gods and his people. And now in this cosmic royal rumble, we are going to see them trying to bring out their best punches in order to knock the other person out. Take, for example, the first plague found in the second half of chapter 7. seven. Verse 14 tells us that he, God tells Moses he's going to do what, or sorry, what he's going to do even before it happens. He basically says, look, I'm in control of this whole thing. I know how this is going to work. I know how it's going to go down. And I want to tell you so that you have confidence going into this that I am God. Because the lesson that I'm about to teach Pharaoh is going to be a hard lesson. And he's not going to listen. 
And yet Moses must still deliver the demand, which we know and heard in songs and movies, let my people go, right? That was the demand that Moses had to deliver time and time again. After Pharaoh's sure refusal, Moses and Aaron are, are given a plague to cast on to Pharaoh and the Egyptians here. But I want to ask the reason why. Why all of these plagues? Why 10 plagues? And why not one plague? Verse 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. That phrase, by this you shall know that I am the Lord, it's repeated over and over and over again throughout these 10 plagues. We should not be left guessing. Pharaoh should not be left guessing. Moses should not be left guessing at what the point is of these 10 plagues. God wants Pharaoh. God wants the Egyptians. God wants the whole world to know who he is. And they will know who he is by what he does through his chosen servants, Moses and Aaron. And this first one here is what, turning the Nile into blood, but we also have the, the swarms of flies and frogs and locusts. And you know, it's interesting, in these first few plagues, Pharaoh's magicians are able to repeat this same miracle or the same plague. And it might be a head-scratcher to us at first, like, what's going on? How are they able to repeat this plague? Well, it may be through sleight of hand. It may be through satanic power that they were able to repeat these things. But notice that they could not reverse them. You see that? When you go back and read the text this week, they could not reverse them. They could put them forth, but they could not take them back. Each plague of judgment was like a boxer's blow to the midsection, time and time again, weakening them again and again and again, ready for the knockout punch. In fact, by the third plague, the Bible says that the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. Isn't that amazing, right? By the third plague, they're all worn out. They don't have any more tricks up them sleeves. They, don't, they can't do anything. And they even say, you know what? There's something to the Israelites' God, Pharaoh. You might want to quit while you're ahead. But Pharaoh, he doesn't listen. And each of these plagues end up pretty much in the same way. Instead of Pharaoh saying uncle and giving up and giving God the glory due to his name, what does he do? He digs in his heels like a fiery Muhammad Ali, pridefully saying, I am the greatest. And yet he has to learn that God is the greatest. And he will learn that God is the greatest. One plague after another, he will learn that God is the greatest. Well, I do want to encourage you guys to read through this fascinating story. It really is one of those stories in the Bible that really goes along uh, like a movie. And I want to encourage you guys to read these 10 plagues, but I want you guys to see a few things as you do this week. And the first one is this, that God strikes at the very heart of the Egyptians' way of life. He goes straight for the juggler. 
Oftentimes when God brings his judgment or when he is trying to get somebody's attention, he takes away the thing that means the most to them. You ever had that happen in your life, right? Maybe you love your sport, for example, and you love it so much that you made an idol out of it. So what does God have to do? Maybe he breaks your leg, breaks your arm. You can't throw, right? He takes it away from you for a season in order to humble you. Take, for example, the first plague here. The Nile River was the lifeline for the people of Egypt. That's where they got their water. That's where they got their water to go um, put on their crops, to grow for their food. That was their source of sustenance and nourishment. It was critical to surviving. So turning it into blood would strike at the very core of the Egyptian way of life. God exposed their false gods and their inability to do anything for them. The Egyptians saw things like the river and the sun as gods. They worshiped these things. And God was showing them that these are just false gods. They're idols. They can't promise or they can't deliver on what they promise. One author says, when God does a job, he does it thoroughly. The plagues did not just trouble the elite of the court. They swept across the entire land of Egypt. Think about that. Pharaoh's actions, Pharaoh's decisions affected the rest of the population. When he dug his heels in with God, thinking that he was the greatest, the rest of his empire suffered. He had to show that he alone was and is the greatest to Pharaoh and his people. Another thing that I want us to see here as we dive in is that hard times in people's lives often produce false repentance. We see this clearly with Pharaoh, right? It seems like many times that he is going to repent or tries to repent, but it actually doesn't turn out true. Pharaoh, he's a very interesting guy. To the Egyptians, he is God. His power is supreme. No one can match his power or authority in all of the kingdom. But to the one true God, he's just like that gnat. That God can squish just like that. Right? What's, what's this little gnat? I'll swat it away. And yet Pharaoh is full of pride. He's full of unbelief. He has this stubborn resistance. And if you read through the story, the text says again and again that Pharaoh's heart was hard or that his heart was hardened or that God hardened his heart. And to be sure, there is no contradiction here, no fault on God's end as if he was doing something unfair or unjust. Pharaoh, just like you and me before Christ, was a slave to sin. He had a heart of stone. He actively hardened his heart against God. Yet at the same time, the Lord clearly hardened his heart. We can't miss that from this text. Paul in the New Testament actually picks up on this and quotes it in Romans chapter 9. That great chapter on God's sovereign election, God's sovereign choice. Quoting from our passage, Paul says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then here's the punchline Paul gives. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Guys, God is not unfair. God is not unjust. He created Pharaoh and can use him however he chooses. That's God's right and that's God's privilege. In fact, if we want to argue about fairness, it's not fair that anyone's heart would be taken from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. It's not fair that any one of us would be able to be forgiven for our sins. That God in his wisdom would choose to give us eternal life. But this hard heart is fleshed out in Pharaoh's reaction to each of these plagues. For the first few, he outright refuses, right? When, Mer when Moses comes and says, let my people go, he says, no, not gonna happen. But as time goes on, it seems like Pharaoh begins to have this little change of heart, but only the next moment to return to his old self. In fact, he begins to bargain with God. I want, I want you to go back and read this. He begins to bargain with God. How does he do that? Well, he says, Okay, you can make your sacrifices and worship your God, but you got to do it here in Egypt. And Moses says, no, that's not what God said. Well, the next time, what does he say? Okay, well, you can take the men to worship God, but you got to leave the women and children. And Moses says, no, that's not how it works, right? But you see that he continues to go on. He says, all right, look. I'll even let you take all your men, women, and children, but you got to leave the livestock. And what does he say again? No, that's not how it works, right? You can't bargain with God. God is saying to, for you to let us go, all of us, everything that we have to worship him. And it even looks that Pharaoh might have almost finally repented, but it also again proves false kind of like a foxhole faith, right? Sometimes people, when they had the bullets flying, they really do repent of their sins and put their, their faith in Jesus. But what do a lot of people do? They say, God, if you get me out of this, I'm gonna give my whole life to you. Well, the bullets stop flying and what happens? They go back to their old ways, right? They forget about who God is. Repentance proved false. Maybe like a deathbed conversion or a fake conversion. Right. Again, some people really do like that thief on a cross. Right. I heard that sermon preached uh, last Sunday at a church and and praise God. He repented. And he really did show true repentance. And we can see that in the text that that he, he received uh, the gift of eternal life right before he died. But how many are false, just scared of what might come? They have no idea. And so they're just throwing a Hail Mary, covering all their bases, praying to God and and the God of Allah and all these other ones just trying to hedge their bets at the end of life. A true biblical conversion shows itself in a transformed heart and life. And Pharaoh did not have that. One author writes this way. He says, for all of time and eternity, Pharaoh will be an example of what it means to resist and reject the goodness of God. How sad that that is your legacy. That's what you're known for, resisting God. Please do not let this be said of you. God gave Pharaoh plenty of chances, right? He could have just gave one plague and then said, I'm done with it. But God gave 10. 
he gives you and me those chances as well. That while we are still alive, there is still time to repent and to put our faith in Christ, to submit to him and to his lordship instead of allowing ourselves to be on the throne of our lives. But Pharaoh and his people suffered the terrible consequences of his pride. They were under God's temporary judgment. And yet God's plan of redeeming his people, God's plan of glorifying himself, continued to move forward even in that rebellion, even in that judgment. We have to see that. But this brings us to another part of this fascinating story and this uh, seeing how God works. It's how God, uh, sorry, God's preservation of his people. By the time the fourth plague rolled around, Moses records something very important for us. Look at chapter 8, verse 22. I'll let you turn over there. In chapter 8, God says that there were these swarms of flies and it was going to engulf the whole land of Egypt except for one place. Verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. So tomorrow comes and guess where there's no green heads? <laughs> No green heads in Goshen. No green heads where the people of God lived. No flies. Just like God had said. God preserved his people. God preserved his people while the whole of the country suffered around them. God kept them. He upheld them. And he provided for them just as he said he would. And this wouldn't be the last time. He did it again and again throughout these plagues. He did it by, uh, the, with the livestock later on. All the livestock of Egypt died. But what happened to the livestock of the people of God? It lived. He, when the hail destroyed the livestock and the crops and the people of Egypt, guess who was safe? The people of God and their crops and their lands. And then as we'll see next week, what happens when all the firstborn of the, of the people of Egypt die? Who lives? The people of God. They are protected. God preserves his people. God wanted them to know without a doubt that he is the one true God. Just like he wants you and me to know without a doubt that he is God. And he takes care of his own. And he gave them a tangible, a touch and taste and see reminder of who he is, just like he's done in our lives. We just shared those things at prayer time. How many times has God given us reminders that he is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do? That's the importance of our sharing our praises just as much as sharing our prayer requests. God protected them. I wonder if you can remember a time in your own life where God has protected you from harm, where he has spared you. I, I just was reminded as I was preparing this sermon of our brother Eli, right? Many of us have heard his testimony shared about how when civil war broke out in Liberia, it's just a crazy story about how God preserved him. He took him from when civil war broke out and his, his family was separated 
and he was fighting to survive. He was fleeing the bullets and everything, the chaos that was going on. And then he was reunited with family. And then not only that, but he was given a chance to come to America. And every step of the way, how God provided for that family. And even now, how as a result, we have Jerusha with us. Right? Because God protected his family. Isn't it an amazing thing to be preserved by God? To be upheld by him in the midst of chaos, in the midst of brokenness. That's our God. We should praise God for that. Now, obviously, we need to be careful in applying this to ourselves. God doesn't always hold back the trials. God doesn't always hold back the flies. Sometimes he brings them, right? But we got to believe that God has a purpose in both of those things. That whether he brings them or whether he holds them back, that he has a purpose for his people. He's got a purpose for glorifying himself. He's got a purpose for shaping us and sanctifying us into the people that he wants us to be, just like he did in Moses' life, right? He had to wait 80 years. He had to go through a whole heck of a lot of things to be ready to do what God told him to do. But God has many tools in his tool belt, amen? amen. So whether that tool is suffering or preservation, it carries out his exact purpose for us. Well, in our final moments here, as we look at the 10 plagues, I want us to see one of the most important things, which we've already highlighted a little bit, is that God's glory will be shown throughout all the world through what he does, right? That's the whole point, the main point of these 10 plagues, that God is glorified. And we know that that's the supreme goal for all that God does, all that he creates, all that he preserves, and also all that he judges, that he would be glorified, that his glory would be known and enjoyed throughout all of the world. And we've already said here, this comes up time and time again in our text. One place we haven't looked at is the seventh plague in chapter nine. Look there with me, starting in verse 14. So chapter nine, verse 14, God says this, for this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. See, God wants to get through to Pharaoh's thick brain, right? His thick and hardened brain. He wants to get through that there is a clear point and purpose in all that he is doing. God wants them and indeed us and all the world, all who have lived to know that he is God alone that he is in control, he has a plan. Nothing is by accident or happenstance. God doesn't have any oopsies in the world. He wants us to know that his fame is going to outshine every multi-platinum music artist, every politician, every billionaire entrepreneur. He says that world leaders will bow to his name now or be forced to later. 
Average Joes like you and me will either submit now to him as king or later and face the terrible consequences of it. But make no mistake about it. It's a sure thing that God will come out on top. He's the only one that can ever say, I am the greatest. Sorry, Muhammad Ali. Right? He's the only one that could ever say, I am the greatest. And you know what? For him, it's not prideful and it's not cocky. Right? There are there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of unbelievers that look at this and say, how prideful is that? But it's not for God because it's simply true. Right? For, for us who try to say that, it's not true. We're not the greatest. And that's why it's disingenuous. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's lying and boasting about ourselves. But for God, it is true. He is the greatest, and there is none like him. The sooner we stop exalting ourselves and be humble, the better. Because only then can we begin to live the life that you and I were made to live. Right? It's a freeing thing that we would know our place and know who our God is, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Well, God's judgment of the wicked and the unbelieving world, I know, is not something that we like to think about for too long. If we're actually understanding it, it should be a hard thing for us to swallow. For starters, we know that that should have been our reality. And so it should be a pill that's hard for us to swallow. But, you know, sometimes that also means that our loved ones, our friends, our acquaintances, we know that's where they are. We know that their hearts are hardened before the Lord. And we know that if they do not repent, that they will face the same fate as Pharaoh. We know that surely we did nothing to receive God's grace, but for whatever reason, just like in the passage of Romans, that God decided to show mercy. You and I will never be able to understand why God showed, showed his mercy to you and me. We are simply and humbly to say thank you and to live a life of gratitude, a life of service to our God. We don't know why he chose to do that to us. And that's for the mind of God, right? The Bible again and again says, look, you're never going to understand fully the mind of God. Some things are for God to understand alone. But we know, again, that not all will receive mercy. Some will remain hardened till their dying breath. Till their dying breath, they will be fighting and punching God all the way, digging their heels in to the very last, in defiance against the God who made them. But loved ones, please believe that even in this, even in God's dealing with them, that God is glorified. And that it's a part of God's plan. Even in his conquering of the wicked and the prideful and the boasted, his name is made known throughout all the earth. Again, I know it's not, hard, or it's not easy to accept that. It's not easy to understand that. And yet it's what, the God, what God's word clearly puts forward to you and to me. The only other option is that God is somehow limited. God is not in control. And that's not what we see in the Bible. His name will be made known throughout all the earth. And we know that when Jesus returns, he will not come as the humble and meek servant that we see in the Gospels, right? In his first coming, that was who he is, right? Who he was, what he was doing. 
And yet when he comes back again, he will come on a war horse ready for battle. He will come as our conquering king. And he will have a decisive and easy victory. Right? A lot of times we depict the end of the world. We think about the book of Revelation as going to be this epic battle. No, it's going to be something very quick. Right? Boom. God's done. He's, he, I mean, it's not even going to be close. Right? We, we make it close for movie purposes. Right? But it's not going to be close. He's going to bring his full kingdom to bear. He's going to usher his people with him. They're going to share in the spoils of his victory but only after he comes to judge the unbelieving world. And in that, God is still glorified, just like he was in this temporary judgment of Pharaoh and his people. I want to end by just uh, encouraging you to think about what grace has been shown to hardened rebels like you and me, because that's who we were, right? If we have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we've surrendered our lives to him, we used to be rebels, hardened, just like Pharaoh, deserving the same thing as Pharaoh. And yet God had mercy on us. And so we should leave not only having a burden for the lost and praying fervently for them, sharing the gospel, hitting the streets, just like we talked about with Miss Elaine and others. We want to do that, but at the same time, praise God for what he has done in your life. There may be a lot of hard things going on in your life right now, but this can always be the good news that holds you up. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, that you are God and that there is none like you. God, even the hard texts of the Bible show us some very good things. And these hard texts about what you did through these 10 plagues, as amazing as they were, as, as crazy as it would have been to see that and to, to be there, the main purpose is that your name would be glorified so that the world would know that you are the one true God. And so God, we praise you this morning. We honor you. We bless you. God, we say there is none like you. We thank you for opening up our eyes to see that, conquering our rebellious, hardened hearts and giving us a heart of flesh we thank you that we're your people. We thank you that you take care of us and you don't treat us as our sins deserve. God, I pray that as we all go out to our separate places this week, that you would help us to meditate on that, that you would help us to think about that. Lord, even as hard things happen this week, that, that we would turn our thoughts, God, to this reality, this truth, and that those sufferings, those hardships would be right-sized not to minimize them, Lord, but to really see them in light of all the things that you have done for us and continue to do. Fix our eyes on you, Lord, as we await your return and keep our hands on the plow. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.